following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. Yeah, it's wider 
by faith I've received from above Oh glory, my soul is made perfect in love My prayer has prevailed And this moment I know The blood is applied I am whiter Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. I'm Ray Greenley from the National Prayer Chapel. I'm going to share with you today some things that are very troubling to me. I think they'll be troubling to you as well. It's a wonderful gift we have received from Jesus, this salvation, this wonderful coming and shedding of his blood, and making a place for us in his kingdom. It's an amazing gift. He came, the Apostle John said, to destroy the works of the devil, to remove our sin, to wash us and cleanse us, to make us whole, to reclaim us from Satan's power. I remember when I was just a young man in college. It was my senior year. I was married, and I was in an apartment in Tacoma Park, Maryland. And it was evening, but not dark. It was still fully light outside. It was summertime. I laid down on the bed for a moment to just pray. And as I lay there, I began to weep, and I began to cry out to God. That continued until it was fully dark outside, and then suddenly the room filled with light. I was startled. There were no lights on. The light bulbs weren't burning, but the room was totally filled with light. I could see every detail. I tried to get up, but I couldn't move. It was as though my whole body were frozen, and the Holy Spirit came upon me in great power. That happened twice. Then and then some years later, it happened again. As I've matured and grown in Jesus, I recognize that that was not the baptism of the Holy Spirit. 
That was the Holy Spirit coming to encourage and change and teach me about Jesus. Today, I walk with a sense of the Holy Spirit's presence in my life. He has removed the old nature from me. Things that would have at one time made me very angry, today they have no impact on me. Instead, pity rises up in my heart and compassion for that person rises up in my heart. I recognize I've been totally changed. I'm a new person in Jesus. I don't love the things that I used to love. I've been changed. And I am joyous over that change. In the last two years, he has called me back to himself at a level that I've never before been. I've shared that journey with you. There's a difference between conversion and consecration. That's what I want to talk to you about today. Your mission, should you accept it, is to be consecrated to the will of God. But what is the will of God? Well, according to Romans, the 12th chapter, you won't know how to determine what God's will is until you have laid your life on that altar of burnt offering. We're called to lay our life down. But I'd like to begin walking with you through some understandings that the Holy Spirit has been bringing to me that are, frankly, uncomfortable for me. I have spoken to a number of people, and I've asked them the same question. What is it that absorbs most of your time and energy in your thought life? And they have given many different answers. All of them good answers. All of them the wrong answer. Let me share. In Matthew, the third chapter... I'll read this very familiar passage if you've been listening to this broadcast. I'll begin with Romans 3, verse 8. He's speaking to the the vipers, the snakes, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the righteous people of his day. He writes, Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. Aphemy is the word there for the removal of all sin. I baptize you with water for the removal of all sin. 
But after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Now, when we look at that passage of Scripture, we can first take a position. Uh Uh-oh, I have to produce fruit. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He's going to clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn. We're being told by Matthew what the work of God is. It's to gather the wheat into the barn, and it's to cast the, the hull of the wheat, the chaff, into the unquenchable fire. And of course, immediately, the first thing that comes to our mind is, am I wheat or am I chaff? That's a very important question and one that you must answer. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are wheat. If you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, you are a pagan, filled with every kind of unclean thing. Jesus came to save you, to set you free, to wash you and make you clean. But there is a part of this passage that we need to understand that this is what Jesus is about. He is about gathering his wheat into the barn. The winnowing fork is in his hand and burning up the chaff. This is what Jesus is about. Now, we find the same thing in the book of Luke. But in Matthew, the fourth chapter, as Jesus comes back out of the wilderness, in verse 17, it says, From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. So he is introducing now the kingdom of God, that is, The divine and royal authority of God is being brought back into the earth, and there is a great separation between the wheat and the chaff that is now beginning to take place and will only grow in its its power. It will only grow in its power. Now, Listen to the fourth chapter of Matthew as Jesus begins to gather his disciples. He says to them, Come, follow me. These men had already spoken with Jesus. They were disciples of John the Baptist, and they had met Jesus. Some of them were cousins of Jesus. He says, Come. They're fishermen. They have their boats. They have their nets. They have a business to run. Jesus says to them, Come, follow me. I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. So they've been fishing for fish, and that's been their livelihood. 
That's been the central focus of their lives, their business. And now Jesus is saying, come follow me. And now you're going to focus on catching men for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, if you go to Matthew, the 28th chapter, the 11 disciples, remember Judas has betrayed Jesus. They went to Galilee because that's where Jesus told them to go, that he would meet them there. They had some 40 days together where Jesus taught them and opened their mind, the scriptures tell us, about the gospel of Jesus. And then he says in verse 19, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, basically, Luke will tell us the same thing. Now, what I want to say to you is the mission of the church, should you accept, is to disciple all nations According to the command of Jesus, we are under an obligation to Jesus to make our life work to convert the world. To convert the world. So let's say that you work at a radio station. What is your first task? To make sure that every person in that radio station is a follower of Jesus Christ. Let's say you work in a government office. What is your first responsibility? To make sure that every person in that office is a follower of Jesus Christ. Let's say you work in construction or you work, you have your own business. Then all of your customers need to be brought to Jesus. The finest thought of our mind must be given to the mission of winning for the kingdom of Jesus. Now, what do we need in order to be successful at this work? And how do we get it? Well, we need to be given power from on high. Jesus had previously informed the disciples that without him they could do nothing. Remember John 15. Without me you can do nothing. When he gave them the commission to convert the world, he added, But tarry ye in Jerusalem till you are endued with power from on high. You shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. Lo, I send you the promise of my Father. This baptism of the Holy Spirit, this promise of the Father, this gift of power from on high, 
is indispensable if you are going to do the work of Jesus in the world. So how do we get this gift? Jesus expressly promised it to the whole church and to every individual whose duty it is to labor for the conversion of the world. And every Christian has the primary duty of laboring for the conversion of the world. He admonished the first disciples not to undertake the work until they had received the gift of power from on high. Both the promise and the admonition apply equally to all Christians of every age and every nation. No one has at any time any right to expect success unless he first secures this gift of power from on high. The example of the first disciples teaches us how to secure the gift. But they had to first consecrate themselves to the work of Jesus to bring the grain into the barn, the work of salvation. This work of consecration is absolutely necessary if you are going to fulfill the commission of Jesus Christ. Now that commission I've read to you, I want to share some other things with you. Luke 11, verse 5, suppose one of you has a friend, and he goes to him at midnight, and he says, friend, lend me three loaves of bread, because a friend of mine is on a journey has come to me, and I have nothing to set before him. Then the one inside answers, Don't bother me. The door's already locked and my children are with me in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him the bread because he is his friend. Yet because of the man's boldness, he will finally get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who receives, everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and him who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So the scriptures teach us that Jesus will send the Holy Spirit to those who ask for it. You know, here's the problem. If we ask for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, thinking that this baptism is to help us be a better Christian, if we think that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is to be an added gift to an already wonderful life, if we imagine that the baptism of the Holy Spirit will give us prestige and standing among the people, 
we've totally missed what the baptism of the Holy Spirit is about. The disciples were already followers of Jesus Christ. When they went into that upper room, they were already utterly consecrated to the cause that Jesus was calling them to. That is, to be fishers of men. They had sacrificed everything they had left behind their families. They had followed Jesus for three years. We see examples in these three years when they argued about who would be the greatest in the kingdom of God. After the resurrection, there was no more arguing. After the resurrection of Jesus, they had absolute confidence that he was in fact the Messiah, the Son of the living God. These men were utterly given to the proposition that they were called to be eternal disciples of Jesus Christ. They were called to be fishers of men. Now, I want to share some thoughts with you from Charles Finney. He talks about this. He talks about the great difference between the peace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit in the soul. He writes, The disciples were Christians before the day of Pentecost, and as such had a measure of the Holy Spirit. They must have had the peace of sins forgiven and of a justified heart. Yet they did not have the power necessary to accomplish the work assigned them. They had the peace with Christ that he had given them, but they, not, they, not, they did not have the power which he had promised. This may be true of all Christians, and right here it is. I think the great mistake of the church and of the ministry, they rest in conversion and do not seek until they obtain this heavenly empowering. This is why so many professors have no power either with God or man. They cling to a hope in Christ and even enter the ministry overlooking the admonition to wait until they are endued with power from on high. Now I tell you, this is what happened in my life. And I know that as we focus on our own spiritual life and do not rise up in faith and ask that this work of entire sanctification be done in our hearts, and this may take some time to do, they had those days in the upper room of self-examination, of searching and entreaty before the Lord. And then the Holy Spirit came. But he did not come as an add-on to a super life. They were already righteous and made holy. 
The Holy Spirit does not come to unrighteous men and women. You know the passage of Scripture in Matthew in the Beatitudes where he says, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do this and this and this? And he'll say, Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. We know that Samson had power, but finally killed himself. This Holy Spirit power that I'm addressing now can only come to a righteous man or woman. I'm not interested in any other kind of so-called Holy Spirit. This coming of this Holy Spirit was not, I repeat, was not an add-on to an already wonderful life. It was power for mission. And the mission was to win the lost to Jesus. Now, I want to read quickly a passage of Scripture. I want to read this out of the book of John. Let me turn to this for you. This is very familiar, but don't let the familiarity with it deceive you. I am the true vine. My father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he's like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Now in John the 17th chapter, He tells us that just as the Father sent him into the world, so he is now sending us into the world. Now, I have not been successful in the work the Lord has sent me to do. And finally, I have had to face the grim reality that I cannot be successful at what he's called me to do without the full power and baptism of the Holy Spirit for the work of mission. Now, some of you have spent a great deal of time, rightly so, as I have, focused on coming and learning about Jesus. 
Some of you have spent a great deal of time in the closet being disciplined, the woodshed being disciplined by Jesus and learning how Jesus moves and acts. You've learned about Jesus. You've been his disciple. But in the end, you will have failed if you do not produce much fruit to the glory of the Father. And what is that fruit? It's not. It's not the fruit of the Spirit that is spoken of in Galatians. It is fruit. It is the real produce of winning souls out of darkness into the light for Jesus Christ. And I know I've taught courses on how to be a soul winner. I've taken countless courses on how to win people to Jesus. I've been through the four-step foolishness. Please understand, the work of redemption, the work of saving a lost soul, is the work of the Holy Spirit. And we need to cooperate with that Holy Spirit and be filled with that Holy Spirit. Now, this baptism of the Holy Spirit has come into much disrepute. It has for me. In fact, when I began to talk about this baptism of the Holy Spirit, the listening audience went way down on the radio. Offerings went way back. I understand. Because most of what we have called in our day the baptism of the Holy Spirit is Disney World stuff. It's fantasia. It's false. It's wrong. And I could go through, I mean, Oral Roberts... Catherine Kuhlman, a man by the name of Lake, many others thought they were operating in the full gift of the Holy Spirit, but there was not the righteousness accompanying it. So their fruit got blown away. And finally, their life ended in disillusionment. I'm not interested in the baptism of the Holy Spirit that is not for the salvation of the lost and the dying. You and I have a question we have to face. What about this baptism? And what about this mission we've been called to of being fishers of men? The disciples received a powerful baptism of the Holy Spirit and with it a vast increase in understanding. The baptism imparted to them a diversity of gifts that were used for the accomplishment of the work. They already had holy lives. They already had self-sacrificing lives. They were already prepared to bear their cross and to die for Jesus. They were already humbled and meek before God. 
this baptism of the Holy Spirit only used those things that had been etched into their soul, walking with the Savior, the power of loving and proclaiming the gospel, the power of teaching, the power of of faith, of living faith, the gift of tongues, an increase of power to work miracles, the gift of inspiration and revelation of many truths that they hadn't known before. Jesus said the helper would come and he would teach them what they were not able to learn from Jesus. Their moral courage was increased greatly to do the bidding of Jesus Christ, no matter what it would cost them. In their circumstances, all of these empowerings were essential to their success. But neither separately nor altogether did they constitute the power from on high which Jesus promised and they received on the day of Pentecost. That which they received as the supreme and crowning and all-important means of success was the power to prevail with God and with man, the power to fasten the gospel of Jesus upon the minds of those who listened. This this last was doubtless the thing which they understood Jesus to promise. He had commissioned the church to convert the world to him. All that I've named above were only means which could never secure the end unless they were vitalized and made effectual by the power of God. The apostles doubtless understood this, and laying themselves and all that they had upon the altar, they besieged the throne of grace in the spirit of entire consecration to their work. They did, in fact, receive the gifts before mentioned but supremely and principally they received the power to savingly influence men and women it was demonstrated right on the spot they began to address the multitude and amazingly three thousand were converted that same hour but there was no new power shown by them upon this occasion except the gift of tongues They wrought no miracles at that time. They used the language simply as the means of making themselves understood. Let it be noted that they had not had time to exhibit any other gifts of the Spirit, which I've just enumerated for you. They had not at that time the advantage of exhibiting a holy life or any powerful grace and gifts of the Spirit. What was said on that occasion, as recorded in the book of Acts of the Apostles, could not have made the impression that it did had it not been uttered by them with a new power to make a saving influence upon the people. This power was not the power of inspiration, for they only declared certain facts of their own knowledge. It was not the power of human learning and culture, for they had very little of that. It was not the power of human eloquence, for there appears to have been very little eloquence. It was God speaking in and through them. It was power from on high, God in them, making a saving impression upon those to whom they spoke. This power to savingly influence rested with and upon them. 
It was doubtless the great and main thing promised by Jesus and received by the apostles and the primitive church. To the honor of God alone, I'll say a little of my own experience. This is Charles Finney. I was powerfully converted on the morning of the 10th of October. In the evening of the same day and on the morning of the following day, I received overwhelming baptisms of the Holy Spirit that went through me as it seemed to me body and soul. I immediately found myself given such power from on high that a few words dropped here and there to individuals was the means of their immediate conversion. My words seemed to fasten like barbed arrows in the souls of these men. These words cut like a sword. They broke the heart like a hammer. Multitudes can attest to this. Oftentimes a word dropped without my remembering it would produce conviction and often result in almost immediate conversion. Yet other times I would find myself in great measure empty of this power. I would go out and visit and find that I had no saving influence. I would exhort and pray with the same result. I would then set apart a day for private fasting and prayer, fearing that this power of the Holy Spirit had departed from me, and would inquire anxiously after the reason of this apparent emptiness, and after humbling myself and crying out for help, the power would return upon me with all freshness, This has been the experience of my life. Sometimes a look would have in it the power of God. I have often witnessed this. Let the following fact illustrate it. I once preached for the first time in a mill town. The next morning I went into the manufacturing establishment to view its operations. As I passed into the weaving department, I beheld a great company of young women, some of whom I observed were looking at me and then at one another in a manner that indicated a a frivolous spirit and that they recognized who I was. I, however, knew none of them. As I approached nearer to those who had recognized me, they seemed to increase in their manifestation of lightness of mind. Their levity made a particular impression upon me. I felt it in my heart. I stopped short. I just looked at them. I knew not how. My whole mind was absorbed with the sense of their guilt and danger. As I steadily looked at them, I observed that one of them became very much agitated. A thread broke. (coughs) Pardon me. She attempted to mend it, but her hands trembled in such a manner that she could not do it. I immediately observed that the sensation was spreading and had become universal among the group. I looked steadily at them until one after another gave up and paid no more attention to their looms. They fell on their knees, and the influence spread throughout the whole room. I had not spoken a word, and the noise of the looms would have prevented my being heard if I had. In a few minutes, all work was abandoned. Tears and lamentations filled the room. At that moment, the owner of the factory, who was himself an unconverted man, came in, accompanied, I believe, by the superintendent, 
who was a professed Christian. When the owner saw the state of things, he said to the superintendent, Stop the mill! What he saw seemed to pierce him to his heart. It is more important, he hurriedly said, that these souls should be saved than that this mill should run. As soon as the noise of the machinery had ceased, the owner inquired, What shall we do? We must have a place to meet where we can receive instruction. The superintendent replied, The mule room will do. The mules were run up out of the way, and all of the hands were notified and assembled in that room. We had a marvelous meeting. I prayed with them and gave them such instruction as at that time they could not bear. The word was with power. Many expressed hope that day, and within a few days, as I was informed, nearly every person in that great establishment, together with the owner, had come to Christ. The power is a great marvel. I have many times seen people unable to endure the word. The most simple and ordinary statement would cut men off their seats like a sword and would take away their bodily strength and render them almost helpless as a dead man. Several times it's been true in my experience that I could not raise my voice or say anything in prayer or exhortation except in the mildest manner without wholly overcoming those who were present. This is not because I was preaching terror to the people, but the sweet sounds of the gospel would overcome them. This power seems sometimes to pervade the atmosphere of one who is highly charged with it. Many times great numbers of persons in a community will be clothed with this power, and when the very atmosphere of the whole place seems to be changed with the life of God, and strangers coming into it and passing through the place will instantly be smitten with conviction of sin, and in many instances be converted to Jesus. When Christians humble themselves and consecrate their all afresh to Jesus and ask for this power of the Holy Spirit, they will receive such a baptism that they will be instrumental in converting more souls in one day than all of their lifetime before. While Christians remain humble enough to to retain this power, the work of conversion will go on till whole communities and regions of the country are converted to Jesus. That was reading from a piece by Charles Finney. I want to come back now and just quickly review. We are all called to bear fruit. We are all called, everyone who calls himself a Christian, is to have as the primary task of their life the winning of men and women to Jesus Christ. That's been a very painful process for me because I never learned that I could pray and be filled with the Holy Spirit. I now stand with absolute confidence and faith that I will be baptized in this power in but a short time. I beg of you to seek also for this baptism of the Holy Spirit, not for some fleshly reason, not for some show and tell, not for self, but to win the lost to Jesus. 
We're not making it, brothers and sisters. The church isn't making it. The pastors are not baptized in the Holy Spirit. Very, very few pastors in Washington, D.C. have ever experienced the fullness of the Holy Spirit baptism. If they had, we'd all know about it. Because the power of God would be moving for the salvation of the lost and the dying. Instead, we've relied on having concerts and popular artists, on big-name speakers, worldly entertainment. It's time for all of that to be put away. It's time to seek the Holy Spirit and His baptism, but it will not come until we consecrate ourselves to the task of winning the lost for Jesus. Will you make that statement of consecration with me today. I'm making that statement. Every moment for the rest of my life, I dedicate to the winning of souls for Jesus. And I can't do it without the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Does the Holy Spirit live in me? Yes, Have I been washed and made clean in the blood of Jesus? Yes. But I have not been endued with the power. And I think you probably have not been either. And we have brothers and sisters we want to win to Jesus. We have mothers and fathers. We have children that our hearts are breaking for, but we have no power to influence them. Our words seem to be wiped away. They don't listen. We need the baptism of the Holy Spirit. People we work with, we've recognized, we've tried to speak about Jesus and we've been cast aside. There's been no conviction in their hearts. This has to change. And the scriptures promise that if we remain in Jesus and he remains in us, we will bear much fruit. But he's very honest with us. He says, you can do nothing without me. Oh, my brother, my sister, it's time to be about the work of Jesus. It's time to be a fisher of men and women, boys and girls. But we need the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to do that effectually. Almighty God, I plead today for the full baptism of the Holy Spirit to enable us to bear witness that you are the Christ. When the church prayed that you would give them boldness in the face of persecution, they prayed that they could testify boldly that you are the Christ. You shook the room again and baptized them all over again. I know this is your heart. Come, Lord Jesus, I pray in your holy name. Amen. Tomorrow will be a live call-in day. You're welcome to tune in. I also very much would like to hear from you. I haven't been able to go to the post office yet this week, so I don't know who's responded. 
But I pray that you will respond quickly and begin to cover the bill for this month for Pilgrim's Progress Radio. Thank you, each of you who took care of last month. That was the Lord. Some of you sacrificed a great deal. Thank you. I love you. Write to me at the National Prayer Chapel, Post Office Box 2346, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22195. You can also go to Pilgrim's no, go to nationalprayerchapel.com, nationalprayerchapel.com. You can give online, and I'm so grateful when you do that because it shows up quickly, and my heart is encouraged. I love you, my brother, my sister. I hope you hear my heart today. I'll talk to you soon. Jesus Christ, our